0: Well, we praise God this morning for his sovereign love, his faithfulness to us as a good father, as our king. So many truths about God that we've already meditated upon at this point in the service. What a joy it is to meditate together as we sing these praises. Our minds are so easily distracted as we are here. It's easy to think about things that are to come or things that have gone before. But We pray that the Lord would lock our minds and our attention to what we are here to do today, and that is to praise his name, to learn of his glorious deeds, and to spend time together in love. And as we do that, I would ask now that you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 43. That's where we find ourselves. We are, as a church, working through the book of Genesis. And uh, that is our our custom here, is to go through books or chunks of books of the Bible, expositionally, to go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, and work through texts. And we are now in Genesis. And coming up to the end of Genesis, uh, in the story of Joseph, those last 13, 14 chapters, which focus on what God is doing, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what God is doing in the lives of Joseph and his brothers. These are the sons of Jacob. Last week, we covered chapter 42, where Joseph's brothers go to Egypt to buy food during a time of famine. There was Famine for Egypt, there was famine for the surrounding lands, and of course that means that there was also famine for the land of Canaan. And that means there was famine for the chosen family, the family of Jacob, the household of Jacob, not immune from the famine that comes on the land. And that, I think, for us is a reminder that as God's people in a fallen world, we are not immune from the same sorts of sufferings that exist all around us. It should not surprise us when Christians get sick, when Christians have tragic things happen to them, when there are all kinds of of things that are Calamities in our lives that happen to Christians as well as non-Christians. When a hurricane comes, it does not discriminate between the believers present and the unbelievers. That it falls on all. A reminder to those of us who are in Christ that we are born into a fallen world. That God does not save us, pulling us out of our circumstances. But he takes our circumstances Turns them for good, as we just sang. And he promises to be with us in a special way as we go through those sufferings. So we see famine for this chosen family, the people of God. Joseph, whom these brothers sold into slavery, has now been exalted by God to the highest position in Egypt. And notice I said that he's been exalted by God Because yes, we would say, of course, that he was exalted by Pharaoh. It was Pharaoh who elevated Joseph to the highest rank in all of the land. Underneath the Pharaoh, of course. But it was actually God. All the while, it was God's hand guiding Pharaoh's hand to elevate Joseph over all of Egypt. So the brothers go to Egypt, and in going to Egypt, they go to Joseph to buy food. He recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. He speaks harshly to them and accuses them of being spies, not to take revenge on them, but rather to test them. We talked about that last week, that you could, you could overlook some key clues and details in the text, and you could come away, and maybe you've done that before in reading the story of Joseph, you could come away and say, man, Joseph is really putting it to them. Of course, by the time you get to the end of the story, we know that's not the case. But even within that chapter, we see clues that tell us that Joseph is not out to harm his brothers. He's not out to get them back. He is testing them. Or God, through Joseph, is testing them. Simeon is confined and the brothers are sent back with grain for their family. But with one requirement. If they want to see Simeon again, and if they want more food for their families, they must return with their youngest brother, Benjamin. This will, of course, verify their story. They've said that they come from one man. In Canaan, and they have another brother with him, and one brother is no more. This is the story that they have given the man. They said, look, we're just here to buy food. And Joseph is saying to them, look, go back, bring your youngest brother. It will verify your story and prove that you are not spies. Of course, Joseph knows they are not spies, but he is testing them. He is testing them to see what they will do as brothers and testing them also as he is doing that he is bringing Benjamin before his eyes we must remember too that as he's testing his brothers he wants to see Benjamin Benjamin is his full brother the brother the son of Jacob as well as the son of Rachel These negative circumstances push the brothers to a state of reflection. As we talked about last week, a a state of reflection on their sin, remembrance of their past evils towards Joseph and consideration of their guilt before God. Their, Their consciences are afflicted as they are going through these heavy negative circumstances. God is using these circumstances to afflict their consciences to remind them of their Past sins. And to make matters worse. As they return home to their father Jacob. They discover that the money. Which they were supposed to have paid for the grain. Has somehow been put back into their sacks. And so now they are left looking like thieves. They've gone and been treated harshly by this man. The lord of the land. They, they've come back and they have the grain. And this man has their brother Simeon. And they open up their sacks and they see, oh no, it's, we, we didn't pay for the food. What's happened? Maybe now we'll be taken as robbers. All of this is, of course, too much for their father, Jacob. He refuses to send his favorite son, Benjamin, back with the brothers to Egypt. And that's where we left last week. Jacob will not, although the Lord of the land, as they call him, the man who oversees the grain distribution, has said, look, you will not see my face. You will not get your brother back unless you bring your younger brother here. They've gone back home. They've said to dad, we need Benjamin. And dad has said, no way. You're not taking Benjamin. Well, today, as we come to chapter 43, we see a reversal of Jacob's decision. The brothers go back to Egypt to buy food, and this time they have their brother Benjamin with them. So he does. He does decide, I have to do this. I have to send Benjamin with my other sons to go and get grain in Egypt. So the title for the sermon this morning, is back to by, guided by grace. We're going to see this morning, I think all over the text, but we're going to see how God's mercy and grace appear in every movement of the story. It's interesting. You can divide this whole story, chapter 43, you can divide it up really into three bits or three sections, three movements of this narrative. And in each of them, we have mention of God's grace, God granting, God, God's mercy, God's grace, and what God gives. God is reiterating his presence Unfolding his plan, overcoming their sin, and mending this chosen family. God is doing all of these things in this narrative. So let me just reflect on that for a moment. One of the things that you all, folks in our church, have said to me over the last two years has been, you know, as we have been going through Genesis... I have really come to understand who God is. I've come to trust him more. I've seen how he works with his people. How he relates to his people. What he does in the lives of his people. His character, his attributes on display through his works. His works of providence, his miraculous works. His works of creating, his works of choosing and sustaining and unfolding the fulfillment of his promises. All the way from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to the last verse of chapter 42. We have learned much about the Lord. And here's what's happening. We are learning to look to him. To look to him in our pilgrimage. If you are a Christian, the Bible understands that you are a Pilgrim moving through this earth. And we see allusions to this all throughout the New Testament. But you've, you've died to your old life. You have given up your life. Jesus says the one who desires to keep his life will lose it. But the one who loses it for my sake will find it. If you're a Christian, you've laid aside your life to follow this Jesus. You have put aside all desire to be justified by your works. And you have trusted entirely in the finished work of Christ for your salvation. And if you are a Christian here this morning, the scriptures, this picture of God in Genesis, and specifically in the story of Joseph, is meant to constantly turn you to look to God as you move through this life. As we said at the beginning, this life In a fallen world. This life where there are famines and droughts. This life where there is suffering. We learn to look to him. To trust him. To lean on him. To rely on him. As his attributes and characteristics and personality come to be manifested in his sacred word. So once again this morning, we see God put on display. Behold your God. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 43. We'll read the whole chapter. This is God's word. It is profitable and perfect. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, We will not go down, for the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say "'Bring your brother down.' "'And Judah said to Israel, his father, "'Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, "'that we may live and not die, "'both we and you and also our little ones. "'I will be a pledge of his safety. "'From my hand you shall require him. "'If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, "'then let me bear the blame forever. "'If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice.' Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin, and ask for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the steward of his house, "'Bring the men into the house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready for the men. "'For the men are to dine with me at noon.' "'The man did as Joseph told him, and brought the men to Joseph's house. "'And the men were afraid, because they were brought to Joseph's house. "'And they said, "'It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks "'the first time that we are brought in, "'so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys.' So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your socks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, and they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, And bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare. And said is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke. Is he still alive? They said your servant our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads. And prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes. And saw his brother Benjamin. His mother's son. And said is this your youngest brother? Of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any. Of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. You can go ahead and be seated. It is interesting to preach through a long story like this one in parts because you're kind of left hanging at the end of each sermon, at the end of each section. But we see here, I think, a contained unit. As we come to chapter 43, that allows us a number of edifying reflections. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his grace as we come to this holy text. Father, we thank you for your word. We know from the mouth of Jesus that it is our food, that it is our means of sanctification, that it is... Words like these that Jesus refers to when he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As he quoted from the Pentateuch, the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, in fighting the devil. Father, we thank you that we have these words, precious words sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. We pray that you would use them this morning to convict us of our sin and even more to raise us up in Christ, to raise us up from discouragement and despair, that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses all understanding, that we would recognize with Paul that height nor depth nor anything in creation no angel, no work of man can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That our hearts would be warmed with this love. Warmed that we would hate sin. That we would trample on the wickedness that we find in this world and often in our own lives, in our own hearts, that we would hate it because of our love for you. Lord, we pray that your love for us would be put on display as we see your love for Joseph, for Benjamin, for Jacob, and for these ten brothers. Frail sinners like us, and yet we see, towering over it all, the wonder of your grace, your mercy, your kindness to sinners, and so, God, we pray that we would see this, know this, and that it would be practically lived out in our lives, today and tomorrow and the rest of this week, this month, this year, this decade, and for the remainder of our lives, that you would, that you would permanently impress upon our hearts truths today that never leave us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So three things this morning to focus our attention as we walk through this portion of the Joseph story in chapter 43. We see the faith, the fear, and the favor. So for the faith, we're going to look at verses 1 to 15 We'll read those again, and then we'll come to the fear, looking at verses 16 to 25, and then finally the spotlight will fall on the favor, which is at the very end of the passage, verses 26 to 34. So let's look first at the faith, and I do want to read again verses 1 to 15 to bring these clearly into view. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied. The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey." Gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present And they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Here, we have severity and necessity. The famine is severe and the family needs food. And as the head of the family, Jacob is responsible for ensuring the protection, the safety, the sustenance of his family. Jacob recognizes the great need. And once again, he calls on his sons to travel down to Egypt to buy grain. Jacob is quite old at this time. He's got these 10 young, strong sons, and they will go and do the heavy lifting that is needed for ensuring the family's survival. Go down to Egypt to buy grain. But there's a problem Of course, we've seen this already. In the last conversation that Jacob had with his sons, he was entirely unwilling to send Benjamin. No, I refuse. There's absolutely no way I am sending Benjamin. So now Judah steps forward to remind him of the fact that they cannot return to Egypt unless they have their brother Benjamin with them. They need their youngest brother if they are to appear before the Lord of the land, if they are to receive back their brother Simeon from confinement, and if they are to get food to bring back to their household. This, of course, reopens the old wound in Jacob's heart. And Jacob rebukes them for even telling the man that they had a younger brother. You could have kept that quiet. Why in the world did you tell him that you had another brother? Why did you tell him about my precious Benjamin? You know he's the only one left of my favorite wife, Rachel. He didn't say all of that, but all of that is packed into there. These sons know they're not the favorite of their father. These sons know that their mothers are second-class wives Only Rachel was the treasured wife. And if you're curious what in the world I'm talking about with all these wives, you'll need to go back and read about that with Laban and his household. But yes, Jacob had four wives in total, and Rachel was his favorite. Rachel had two sons, Benjamin and Joseph, and they are his father's favorite. As far as Jacob is concerned, Joseph has been killed, devoured by a wild beast, and now the only one left is Benjamin. Why did you even tell him about Benjamin? Jacob says. And of course, they have to defend themselves on this one. Their defense is that they simply answered the man's questions. Dad, we just told him what he asked us. I mean, we didn't know. How could we know he was going to say, you got to go back and get your younger brother? There's no way we could have anticipated that. Well, here they are, clamoring about this. And to cut through all the tension... And get to the issue at hand, Judah does what Reuben had unsuccessfully tried to do earlier. Remember Reuben had said to his dad, look, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. A ridiculous thing to say, of course. Saying to his dad, you can kill your two grandchildren. If I do not bring Benjamin back to you is absurd. But Reuben was saying, look, I'll take care of the boy. I'll I'll ensure his safety. Well, to that, Jacob said, no way. But now we have Judah. And he is doing the same thing. He takes full responsibility for Benjamin's safety and returns. So look at verses 8 to 9. Look at what Judah says. Send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. That's what Judah says to his dad, and so Jacob resigns. To the inevitable. What we have here is a sense of resignation. It is, it is truly sad. I mean if you could explore the depths of, of Jacob's suffering. We know that by the end of his life. He reflects on short and hard have been the years of my life. Imagine the anguish. But he resigns to what he sees to be an inevitability. He must let go of Benjamin in order to save Benjamin even. And not just Benjamin but everyone in his household. He must send Benjamin if the family is to buy more food. But as he had done with Esau many years before, he wants to appease the man. And so, in typical Jacob fashion, a very practical, proactive man, what does he do? He gives practical instructions to his sons. Bring the man a present. Take double the money. Return the money that was put back in the sacks. And then have another set of money that you can use to buy more food. Return this to the man and bring this great present. And then we come to the heart of this section. Jacob's prayer. Short little bit, but it's the key to unlocking what's going on here. And in fact, what's going on in this entire chapter. We see this prayer from Jacob. And in looking at Jacob's prayer, we are seeing Jacob's faith. Verse 14, look at his prayer. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. One of the interesting things about going through Genesis like this, where we've had to walk alongside of Abraham, And he died. And we walk alongside of Isaac. He died. We're walking alongside of Jacob. But we really haven't been walking alongside of Jacob for a while. We remember we were in the thick of it with Jacob. We were seeing God's faithfulness to Jacob very specifically in his circumstances. And we walked through all that happened there With his two sons killing all of that village. And then God brings them out. And and he's, he's watching over them. Putting fear in the hearts of all the surrounding peoples. We saw how God was with him with Laban. And how he pulled him through that. Esau. So many instances of God's faithfulness. But we really haven't been with Jacob in a while. And now we go back to Jacob's theology. We go back to Jacob's experience of the Lord. And with this prayer, Jacob is doing three things. He's remembering, he's entrusting, and he is pleading. He's remembering, entrusting, and pleading. So let me say a bit about each of those. First, he's remembering. Notice what he says. Or rather, notice how he refers to God. God Almighty goes all the way back to Abraham in chapter 17, verse 1. God came to Abraham and said, in chapter 17, verse 1, this was a while ago before Isaac was born, I am God Almighty. This name for God goes back to the promises, it goes back to the God who chose a man who did not deserve to be chosen who chose a man and made these lofty promises to him and then demonstrated all of these fulfillments of those promises. God Almighty was also on the lips of Isaac. You remember after Jacob had deceived his father Isaac and then his father sends him away to go and get a wife and and this is what Isaac says to him. Chapter 28, verse three. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. And then as we're walking through the life of Jacob and we're seeing his struggles in chapter 35 verse 11, as Jacob is coming back to Bethel, remember God's faithfulness is is most demonstrated in the fact that he brought him back to Bethel. He brought him back to the land as God promised him he would do. And this is what God says to Jacob, I am God. Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation, and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. God Almighty to Abraham, God Almighty to Isaac, God Almighty to Jacob. Jacob is forced to remember the faithfulness of this God, the God who hasn't just been with him in the details of his life, but the God who made these grand promises to his grandfather, and who gave a son to the elderly barren Sarah? He is remembering God's faithfulness with these words. And then we see his entrusting. He's remembering and he's entrusting. He entrusts his son, his precious son. Into God's hands. We've seen that before. Do you remember when Abraham was told by God. To go up on a mountain. And to sacrifice his son. Your only son whom you love. God is just kind of rubbing it in there. Reminding him how precious Isaac is to him. And God is saying. You must trust me with your son. You must trust me with your precious treasure. I am your God Almighty, Abraham, entrusting Isaac. And now Jacob must entrust Benjamin to the hands of the Lord. And I want to say a quick note about the relationship between remembering and entrusting. And it's this, we must remember if we are to rely What I mean is, there there really is, uh, our our trust in God never comes out of a vacuum. It never just comes out of the middle of nowhere. But it's always built on God's faithfulness demonstrated in Scripture and demonstrated in our lives. Redemption accomplished and applied. Redemption accomplished in history, in the, the grand scope of Scripture centered on the cross and the empty tomb. And redemption applied. As God has graciously by the Holy Spirit and his irresistible grace worked in your life, Christian. So, we must remember if we are to rely. The more we know what God has done, the more ready we will be to trust him with what might be. We don't know the future. None of us in this room knows how long He or she will live. None of us knows what tragedies. And and negative circumstances. Await us in the future. None of us knows. What will happen with our children. As they grow up. None of us. We must entrust it all. Into God's hands. And the only way we can do that. Is if we remember what he's done. And who he is. God Almighty, he is faithful, he is a covenant-keeping God. So we see remembering, we see entrusting, and now we see the pleading, the prayer itself. We saw this as he was praying before he met Esau. We see the pleading. He knows that God has the power to do this. By the way, prayer says God can, right? I mean, that's what prayer in part is. It is a statement of faith in God's power. We don't ask God to do things that we don't think he can do. We ask him because we know he is powerful. And so Jacob knows that God can grant you mercy before the man. Jacob knows that God can so work in that man's heart that No matter what has gone before, these brothers can go to Egypt. They can meet this Lord of the land and everything will be okay. Because God can do that. I think that tells us that we always live and pray into God's omnipotence. We always pray into the context of God's all-powerful nature. Do you pray expecting God to do and act? Do you pray believing that God can? God Almighty can. He can. And that is why we pray our Father in heaven. John Calvin brings together Faithful prayer and responsible living. I love this quote. I think it's so helpful. Uh, Calvin is so good as he goes through these stories at at seeing little implications that shoot off of the lives of these people as he just goes through and explains what's going on in the text. And, And this is one I think that is particularly helpful as he observes what Jacob is doing. Listen to what he says. Having commanded his sons to do what he thought was necessary, he prayed that God would give them favor With the governor of the land. With the governor of Egypt. Here's here's the implication he draws out of that. We must note. Both these points. Whenever we are perplexed by anything. Are you perplexed this morning? Are you perplexed about something? Are you anxious about something. Turned here and there. By something in your life. He says we should note both of these points. Whenever we are perplexed by anything. And here's what he says. We must Not omit any of those things that are expedient or that may seem to be useful. And yet we must place reliance on God. This is wise living. This is wise living. For, he says, the tranquility of faith has no affinity with laziness. Now think about that. Do do we sometimes hide behind faith to prop up laziness? I think so. Sometimes we take that idea of surrendering and trusting God and we just sort of let go and do nothing, say nothing, read nothing, pray nothing, even. God's got this. Oh, it sounds so holy, it sounds so pious, and yet it's just a mask for laziness. Consider what Calvin is trying to teach us here as he reflects on this instance of Jacob, that we have both and, we have something in which the tranquility of faith is, is put alongside of a kind of practical wisdom and stewardship that says, God has placed these things in my life. I will take hold of them and use them as I can, all the while trusting in his work on my behalf. I think it's convicting. It's convicting especially to what could be false piety. Before we move on, There's one thing we simply can't miss. Here we have a foretaste of Judah offering himself for Benjamin. I love this. Judah offering himself for Benjamin. Now we're going to get that more dramatically a little bit later. But this is substitution. Oh, it's so beautiful. Think about this. Judah is is substituting himself for his brother. He's, He's stepping in in the place of Benjamin. And we'll see that, as I said, More clearly later, and I think it points us, of course, to the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah who offered himself for our safety. Father, I will bring them to you. I give my life in order that I might bring them to you. Father, this is Christ. He died for your safety, Christian. He died in order that you might not have to endure eternal death, separation from God in hell. He substituted himself in your place. His agonies on the cross were for you, Christian. His suffering, the turmoil of his heart and the the agony of his nerve endings and the wrath he bore, the wrath of God he bore, treated as the vilest sinner on the tree as a substitute. All that wrath is for you apart from Christ. All that wrath absorbed in his death for us. Hebrews 2:9, the one who tasted death for us. 2 Corinthians 5:21, the one who became sin for us. The substitute, the substitutionary atonement for sin. Judah here, a little picture pointing towards that great biblical reality. So we see the faith. Secondly, we move to the fear. Let's look at verses 16 to 25 for this. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in. So that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. In this second section of the narrative, we have the brother's interaction with the steward of Joseph's house. They have now come to Egypt with Benjamin. Joseph sees them and tells his steward to bring them in and prepare a meal so that all of them can eat together with Joseph. Joseph and his brothers sharing a meal together. But this invitation... Filled with welcome and hospitality. Serves only to heighten the anxiety and fear of Joseph's brothers. What does this mean? All these people there. Gathered to get food. And they're just walking right up. Getting their food. Paying their money. Why in the world are we being invited into his house? What's going to happen? Yes. Yes. They have brought Benjamin as the man required, but maybe now he will attack them and enslave them because of the money that was put back into their sacks. Oh. You can feel their intense anxiety as they desperately take the initiative to defend themselves to the steward. Verses 20 to 22, they start, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, dot, dot, dot. They, they give a full explanation. So desperate To convey to him we are innocent man. We didn't do anything wrong. When we connect this fear. To last week's passage. We realize that the fear. In their hearts. The fear of these brothers. Is connected to their sense of guilt. Fear and guilt go together. In the experience of these brothers. Throughout these chapters. These two things are wedded together. They recognize that God is ultimately behind these events and that what they did to their brother Joseph over 20 years ago did not escape God's notice. Fear of God and repentance is beginning to bubble up in the hearts of these men. I think there are two implications for us here. The first is this. God uses Negative circumstances to facilitate repentance. So that is not to say that the negative circumstances that we experience in our lives are specifically tied to the need for us to repent of something. We know that God tests and we know that we live in a fallen world and it is a complexity of things going on anytime we fall into negative circumstances, we always look to the Lord. But we recognize this morning that at the very least, it gives us opportunity to pause when we're facing a challenge or trial or something that is just really heavy. It, it offers us an invitation to come to God with a repentant heart. To come to God recognizing that this is an opportunity God might be using in your life for you to repent over something specific. and To seek the Lord. To ask Him what He's doing. We may not get answers to those questions. And the end result is that we trust Him. But we at least see here that negative circumstances facilitate often our repentance. We also see... Very importantly for you, non-Christian, with us this morning, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. But in particular, you need to hear this. God sees all sin. You may be hiding your sin from the police, from your spouse, from your children, from your friends, This goes for the Christian as well. God sees every sin. God judges all sin. God never just passes over sin. Every sin in the history of mankind will be punished or is punished. But here's the wondrous glory of the gospel. You're here this morning not to be pounded with that merely. You need to hear that. Because God will judge you for your sin. But you need to understand this. The good news of Christianity is that Christ came. In order that he might bear that judgment for sinners like you and me. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Know this. God sees all your sin. He will judge in the end all your sin. But God forgives through Christ all your sin the guilt of your heart, the guilt of your life can be given over to Christ as he takes the sin of his people and satisfies God's wrath on the cross. But this fear is met by relief. When the steward responds to them, verse 23, he replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. These words of comfort bring the brothers back to Jacob's prayer. God is guiding them with his grace. And to this relief is added the release of Simeon and the hospitality of that they are bathed and they are watered and their animals are fed. And so with their fears relieved, they prepare their present for the Lord of the land who happens to be their brother. And that leads to our final point this morning as we finish up this chapter The favor. Look at verses 26 to 34. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them... ...and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves... And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for this is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. There's a lot here. Several things that I want us to see as this episode and the larger story comes to a close. First, we have a further extension of the hospitality, kindness, and relief. In other words, we have further answer to Jacob's prayer. From the brother's perspective, Jacob's prayer is being answered. Do you see that? There's a veil, as it were, between everything going on on the Jacob-Joseph side, I mean on the Jacob and the brother's side, and, and and the Joseph side. And from the brother's perspective, they are witnessing the unfolding of God's faithful answer to their father's prayer. They are being received in the warmest possible way. Joseph expresses concern for their welfare and the welfare of their father. He blesses Benjamin and then shares a meal with them. As they are seated separately because of this taboo among the Egyptians. So we see that. Second, we have a further fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. Do you see that here? Twice they are said to bow down to the ground before him. So once again, we have this bowing down. Showing that the God who revealed to the family this would happen. Is sovereign over the affairs of men. It is happening. As God had foretold. Third, we have an anticipation of the future restoration of the family bonds. The narrative ends on a note of uninhibited family happiness and solidarity. And they drank and were merry with him. It really is an incredible picture. Here are these foreigners, as far as they think. They are foreigners to Egypt. And here's Joseph this elevated man, the highest of figures in Egypt, and they're just sitting around merry together. It points to a future time when God would reunite the family in peace in Egypt. God was uniting his people. He was mending those relationships. And that reminds us we can't miss this. It reminds us that God cares about our relationships with one another as his people. There's an emphasis in the New Testament always on, in the Bible as a whole, always in, in the vertical relationship between the Christian and God. But that relationship seems to always be couched in the relationships that exist horizontally. And so Jesus says he's given the farewell discourse about his relationship to them, has much to say about their relationship to one another. And in the law, when God is talking to his people and he's saying, do this for I am holy, he oftentimes is explaining to them how they are to relate to those who are afflicted among them. So there is this interrelationship between worshiping God and loving his people. Do you think sometimes that you can just have a nice dandy relationship with God and ignore his people. Crawl away. Be to yourself. Private devotions will suffice. God cares about how his people relate to each other. We see God not only saving his people, not only working grace in the heart of these brothers, but we see him mending the relationships between the brothers. He cares about such things. Fourth, we have a heightening of the sense that God is at work. Verse 33, And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. They look around and they realize, they are in birth order. How in the world did this happen? They are seated in birth order. Of course, we know, and Joseph knows why Joseph did that. But from their perspective, this is, something's going on. And it heightens for them an awareness that God is present. That God is working. The unseen hand of God is there. Which further reiterates the fact that God is showing his mercy and answering Jacob's prayer. Do you see how it all is connected together finally, and most importantly, we have the favoritism of Joseph. Hence the point, the favor. Joseph shows favoritism to Benjamin. He blesses him with words of God's grace. And then he gives five times the portion of his brothers. There's no way he can eat all of this because the sense is that all the brothers have more than they can eat. This is a feast. Every single one of them is feasting. So it's not practically going to really matter, but all this food is just piled up. The whole buffet line, piled up in front of one man, this younger son, Benjamin. In fact, throughout this, Joseph can't even contain himself after he speaks to Benjamin. He must again leave the room to weep. Someone I read in a commentary that if Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, Joseph is the weeping patriarch. All these these instances of him weeping, but he he can't contain himself. God has done all of this, and and there are his brothers, and there's Benjamin, little Benjamin, all 20 years ago. Who knows how old he was, but he wouldn't have been very big. Little brother. Can't contain himself. Runs out. Why the favoritism? Short answer is he is testing them yet again. I'm going to give you a a couple of quotes here that I think capture it best. Kenneth Matthews says, if jealousy towards Benjamin had existed among the brothers, this special goodwill, listen closely to this, this special goodwill by so powerful a figure as the Lord of the land would have surely chafed the men. Alan Ross says, Joseph is providing them with reason for jealousy. You see what Joseph is doing? He is dangling before them an opportunity to repeat what they had done to him. Providing them with a reason for jealousy. And preparing them for the opportunity to rid themselves of Benjamin as they had Joseph. Will they do the same thing to this other son of Rachel? Or have they changed? Have they turned from that sin? Are they truly penitent. So, we see in this narrative the God of grace and mercy. Answering prayer, relieving fear, testing and convicting, saving and reuniting. This, this is our God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, who gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, your word is true and it ministers to us, Lord, by your spirit. We thank you for it this morning and we pray that you would take it in the hours ahead and that you would massage it into the cracks of our hearts, Lord, that that there would be a clear understanding of, of what it means for us to respond to you. God, we pray that as the service concludes, that you would, as, as, as we pray prayers to you, as we come forward and as we sing praises to you and as we affirm our faith and we uh, go through the benediction, Lord, and all the rest of the service, we pray that you would show us how we ought to respond to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.